Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. We are awaiting comments from U.S. Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen from her confirmation here in Washington, uh, D.C. We will bring them to you as they occur. Right now, let's go to Ira Jersey, get some preview, if you will, of what we might hear from Secretary nominee Janet Yellen. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joins us. Ira, thanks so much for coming on with us here today. What do you expect to hear from uh, Mrs. Yellen today? Well, first, I think we're going to hear a big sales pitch for President-elect Biden's uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. Um, I I think that'll be important. Uh, She'll probably be asked about uh, how that will be funded and how that might affect interest rates. And and she'll say, well, interest rates are historically very low, so this is the time you want to be taking on more debt, not when interest rates are significantly higher. So I think those are the Kind of the first, uh, the first couple of things, and then, and then I suspect that at some level she'll also be asked about um, working with the Federal Reserve, which is uh, not something that Secretary Mnuchin necessarily always had a uh, a rosy um, uh, a rosy time with. So, so I think Janet Yellen will uh, will be asked a you know a number of things, both from the monetary and the fiscal side of things today. Ira, how will her rhetoric change from the time when she was when she was Federal Reserve Chair? I mean, obviously there were certain restrictions then that there aren't on her now. Should we anticipate a different kind of Janet Yellen? I think a a little bit, but um, you know, even Janet Yellen, she was out front talking about things that, quite frankly, are not uh, exactly in the Federal Reserve's purview. So things like income inequality was something that she talked about uh, both in, in public remarks as well as before members of Congress in the past. So, so now she can speak much more directly about that. And I, I think that especially with uh, Democrats, you know, Senator Grassley and, and others uh, being, um, uh, the Democrats being in the majority now, that she'll be asked uh, about income inequality a number of times and what can be done to fix that. And, and I think that she'll um, you know, she, she'll, she has very strong opinions about uh, about income inequality and both the problems um, uh, that that it creates in in the broader economy, but also um, you know how you can fix it. And you know, it's it's not an easy an easy ask. And and you know, there some of the people I think once she answers that, some Republicans may actually go on the uh, I don't want to say attack her, but certainly go, take the other side and say, well, there has to be winners and losers then. And you know, how do you incentivize investment and at the same time ensure that uh, that that incomes um, can be more normalized between uh, be, between the haves and the have-nots. Ira, what do we know about Janet Yellen's um, thoughts and policies and strategies about the ongoing fiscal deficit, the you know the annual deficits we run every year in this country, and the and the long-term debt this country is racking up? How does she feel about that? That's a good question. Uh, we haven't heard a lot from her on that exact subject, except saying that um, you know it can't you, it can't go on forever. So she's not a modern monetary theorist uh, at heart, anyway. Um, but but I think that she'll probably come out and say, well, this is the time when you need to spend. She'll take a very neo Keynesian view, I would think, which is you know you have to spend when the economy is weak, when interest rates are low, and then reduce the amount of deficit spending as the economy recovers and you're in the Good times. Um, the you know clearly over the last over the last half century we haven't had a great 
um, a great track record of that. But what has happened during good times is that you've had uh, nominal GDP growth uh, growing much faster than the fiscal deficit. So you've had debt to GDP go down. But now, with the massive amounts of, of uh, deficit spending over the last uh, decade, we, we've, um, we've now approached uh, 100% debt to GDP. And in fact, this year, we will, um, uh, we, we will go over that, and particularly if there is another $1.9 trillion stimulus. So, um, so, so she'll have to address that, and, and it'll be interesting to see you know, how worried she is about that and, and how much she um, you know, says, hey, we do something now, but in the future, the rest of my term as, as Treasury Secretary, maybe we won't be, uh, have deficits that are as high as they'll, they'll likely be over the next 12 months. Chair Chuck Grassley is making his opening statement right now. That will go on for a few minutes. Ira, you know, she will obviously talk about the ways to stimulate the economy. Will she be in favor of direct checks? Will she talk about helicopter money? Uh, well, helicopter money is different than direct sure. checks, right? So he- helicopter money is, is talking about monetary policy and, and basically the Federal Reserve printing money, which <laughs> is a much longer discussion and, and is not something that necessarily works the way that, that some monetary theorists think it does, at least in my opinion. Um, but, but I think that, that she will um, talk about some direct checks. I think um, the, the, she will acknowledge, though, that direct checks only help in the very short term and that um, there's other policies that – um, that, that may be more important for the long-term sustainability of the country. So, um, so, so things like uh, you know mortgage moratoriums or ensuring that people keep jobs. So, like something like the PPP might be better than direct stimulus checks to uh, to the household sector. It, because one of the things that we have to remember is that direct checks to the household sector they, they are a one-time boost, and if um, if all of that money is spent, or, or even if some is saved, it still only it, it doesn't help in the longer term. So something like keeping people in their jobs, or or you know helping uh, people stay uh, stay at work, or helping with longer term unemployment, um, those are things that that will probably have a greater impact on on the long term health of the economy than you know someone getting an extra an extra five or six hundred dollars um, in uh, you know at one time. So, Ira, you know, in addition to this 1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus that is on the table right now, there's talk of already another package behind it, perhaps even larger, that may be more infrastructure oriented, more longer term, maybe even a green component. Do we know what Janet Yellen feels about some of those strategies and those policies? Well, I, I don't think that she. I think that ultimately she'll be on board with uh, with the president's general plan. So, if if the president does come out with some kind of you know green uh, you know green new deal or um, uh, and infrastructure spending that will, might go under over multiple years. So, so so when you think about the the next plan behind this, I, I think it's more of a yeah it might be three trillion dollars, but it's probably three trillion dollars over five years or six years. It's not you know two trillion dollars right now, which is what we're talking about with the uh, with the second fiscal stimulus. Um, so so we don't know, but I think that she'll have to be on board with that. I mean, she wouldn't yep. be nominated for Treasury Secretary without uh, needing to be the spokesperson for the broad array of different things that President-elect Biden wants to do. Ira, Terry Haynes of Panagia Policy makes a good point. He says that 
you know, markets will receive this as positive news. This uh, Janet Yellen, you know, most risk likely asset markets maybe Bonnie. What <laughs> so sh- risk asset markets might take it kindly? I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that the rates market would take you know two trillion dollars stimulus plan as uh, as particularly kind. Well, uh, yeah, that's an excellent point. <laughs> that's an excellent point. We we let's expand on that in a second. But uh, just to finish that first thought, he was saying that. She provides cover for regulators, for progressive regulators like, for example, Gary Gensler and, and Chopra at the CFPB, because she has been talking a lot about, you know, about consumer affairs. Yeah, so so consumer affairs is interesting because one of the one of the issues with income inequality is is who's able to get loans, right? So so the, the good things and the bad things about the CFPB and and some of the work that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's uh, you know done over over the course of the last decade is you know they they want to make sure that people are getting. Uh, loans that firstly are uh, sustainable but and and that they're not being taken people aren't being taken advantage of you know like what happened at some points during the mortgage crisis but at the same time that also means that there's a lot of people at the margins who might not be able to get loans um, because they're not seen as worthy borrowers so that means that you know in places like um, under um, you know, un- some underserved communities might not be able to get loans to start businesses or to buy a house. Like, so, so there, there's knock-on effects with that. So I think that there probably needs to be some changes. And I think um, someone like Janet Yellen can kind of find the balance between safety and soundness and, uh, and the ability to al- allow some type of risk-taking uh, to be done and, and for loans to go out. You know, maybe it's on the auspices of the SBA, for example, where the Small Business Administration might ease loans in certain areas where, where businesses might be able to um, might be able to take on a little bit more debt, but but all of this costs money, right? So at the end of the day, there, you know, if you do have uh, riskier loans being made by the SBA, the chances for credit losses by the SBA goes up, and and that means that that has to be funded at some level, and that has to be funded via issuing Treasury securities. So that's one of the reasons why I bring up, you know, that that all of the spending means that you have to issue a lot more bonds, and by issuing a lot more bonds, someone has to buy them. And eventually, you're going to see much higher yields because of that supply. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your extended time. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Earnings season in is beginning, and we always begin with the big banks, and uh, the season is no different. Uh, some mixed numbers, I guess, coming out of some of the big banks uh, here. But let's break it down. We'll do that with Shanali Basic, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News. Shanali, what have we seen this morning? We had uh, some of the big names kick us off. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very clear continuation of what we've seen all year, which is Main Street versus Wall Street, and Wall Street is winning. So, all right, let's talk to us about what we've seen so far. The, the, the trading numbers, Shanali, have been so strong for so many of these big banks. Is that trend continuing? It sure is. And a lot of this is driven by a lot of volatility in equity markets, on robust IPOs. Goldman Sachs just said it had one of the highest quarters for net revenue ever for equity underwriting driven by this IPO cycle. So that's still going on. Let's see how long that can keep going on. Yeah, I mean, what are analysts saying, Shanali? Are they anticipating that this will continue? There certainly is an expectation, except for it's supposed to be a little less than what we've seen last year. Last year was a standout year by any means, and it was also guided higher by fixed income being so robust. We're seeing a lot of the banks here miss expectations on fixed income trading 
remember last year we've seen so much debt underwriting as companies dashed for cash that that really helped fixed income volumes higher. So without that leg, can trading stay quite as high? Not expected, but high enough to keep that profit churning. Hey, Shonali, so when you take a look at a, a Bank of America, I mean, obviously they have the big investment bank uh, from the acquisition of Merrill Lynch, but I think of them more as a, a corporate bank, you know, relying more on net interest income. And I'm looking at the rate structure right here. Still got to be tough to make money in that business. It's the number one question that they've been getting today. It's net interest income. How much pressure is there? They are saying that it's probably bottomed out in terms of how bad it could get. But with that said, it's a lot of sluggish growth there because you're also seeing loan growth very sluggish as well, Paul. So how do the banks that are so focused on the consumer continue to make money when they're not lending at a fast rate and when they're not uh, really benefiting from what the interest rates look like here? So, Shanali, what should we anticipate from the asset managers next week? Because this gives us a little little glimpse into what we uh, see from the likes of BlackRock. Yes, absolutely. BlackRock really stand out numbers there in terms of assets under management. Remember, Goldman and J.P. Morgan also two of the top money managers in the world. We don't think about them that way because they're mostly banks. But again, many trillion dollars altogether there in assets. They're really benefiting here from the higher market levels. That's That's number one. But number two, they're also benefiting here from really an expansion, at least for Goldman's sake, an expansion in private markets as they grow that merchant banking business as well. So, Shanali, with uh, the Democrats taking control of the White House and a very, very slight control of Congress, there's definitely concern there that the financial services industry is going to come under some heavier regulatory scrutiny. What have we heard from some of these early conference calls uh, from some of these big financial institutions? Are they concerned? So we have not actually, you, you, uh, it's the number one question on my mind for sure. We haven't heard a lot about it yet on these calls. What's remarkable is that just last Thursday, you saw these elevated unemployment claims, almost a million, more than 18 million altogether now. But then the next day, JP Morgan comes out and says they have had their most profitable three-month span in history. Yeah. So how, how can both things be true? What can we expect from the Biden administration between Janet Yellen and Gary Gensler and others who uh, may be more progressive in the OCC and CFPBB, which are more consumer leaning organizations? Is there going to be a concern that these banks that, that are making so much money are simply not lending to the broader part of the American economy? Well, how much can Janet Yellen do about this? Uh, she's been questioned right now by you know a multiplicity of senators, and I imagine some of these questions are going to come up. So we will hear from her, uh, you know, on what she thinks about these things. But uh, will the Treasury Secretary have you know that much of an impact? Well, yes, because for one thing, she will have a starring role as the head of the Financial Stability Oversight Council. Will there be stronger rules in terms of what these banks are able to do moving forward? On top of that. There are questions about whether these banks should be beholden to greater regulations when it comes to serving more lower income to middle income communities, more women and more people of color. There is an expectation that there will this will be a matter of law uh, not too far from now. So the question is, how aggressive do they get in terms of disclosures and potentially even quotas ahead? 
Hey, Shanali, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're busy these days and busy for the remainder of the week as we get more from the big banks and financial institutions on Wall Street. Shanali Basak, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, got some uh, mixed numbers, I guess, out of Goldman at Bank of America, but we'll f- see to get some confirmation from some of the others, uh, including uh, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and others uh, coming up. So earnings season in full swing. Stocks versus bonds. Boy, you look at the 10-year Treasury yield today trading at 1.09%. Not much of a return for locking up your money for 10 years. That's uh, not surprising that we see so much attention on the equity markets. Let's chat with Mike Dowdle, investment strategist and portfolio manager for BMO Global Asset Management. They have $279 billion in assets under management. Uh, Mike joins us on the phone from Chicago. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, you look at that 10-year treasury at 1.09% and you're like, I just don't see that kind of return for that kind of period. Is it very attractive? I got to be in equities. Is that kind of how you're looking at things? Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good summary of uh, kind of where the market's at right now. Uh, A lot of where we've seen uh, in terms of this equity rally, uh, a lot of it is, is bond dependent. Uh, there's a lot of investors out there. Uh, you need to go somewhere. Where are you going to get that growth? Uh, a lot of it's not going to come from your bond portfolio. Uh, so a lot of people have been, uh, been been more or less forced into equities. Yeah, I mean, what about forced out of the U.S.? Is that an alternative? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a pure value valuation based investor, uh, outside the U.S. looks particularly attractive. Um, but the U.S. still remains a pretty good place to be. Uh, it's a defensive market due to the composition. Uh, the U.S. consumer continues to be really uh, the driver of growth, uh, particularly in the developed markets. So uh, we still like the U.S. markets, although we have become a lot more constructive on emerging markets over the last few months. All right. So in emerging markets, Mike, how much risk do I take looking there? I mean, is it simply make up, try to make some plays in China or do I go perhaps even farther out in the risk curve? Yeah, we actually like a little bit broader out than just that, that, that straight China play. Um, you have a lot of tailwinds behind you right now in emerging markets. Uh, you have what we think will be a synchronized uh, global recovery in 2021, particularly in the second half. That should help some of the higher beta markets. Um, and you also have that weakening dollar, uh, which is really helpful for and gives a lot more just leeways for, for uh, emerging market central banks to uh, have a bit more stimulative policy than otherwise. All right. So when would be a good time, you think, to try and make a little bit of a move in the markets? Is, is, you know, is it a question of waiting until the vaccinations are sort of all over the country and, and then we'll see rotations and things? Or, or do you just keep adding now? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's really the question. Uh, we, we think right now it makes sense. So, uh, I mean, markets aren't, aren't coincidental. They're really forward looking. So, uh, yeah, vaccine rollout has been slower than many had hoped. Um, however, it's, it is still rolling out, particularly in the U.S. here. Uh, we're looking like we're going to get up to a million uh, uh, doses a day. Uh, that should be quite positive. Um, so we think you need to get ahead of that. And just looking out over 2021, uh, we put out our, our annual outlook. We called it uh, a rousing recovery. And we think that that makes sense, that uh, particularly you should see that shift from the manufacturing sector into the services sector and really see the economy start to take off in that second half of the year. So getting in front of that is important. If you wait until that actually shows up in the data, you're probably going to be behind the eight ball. All right. So, Mike, you know, it's this is a market that's been driven by the Fed, all the liquidity in the marketplace. Uh, fiscal stimulus, it seems like there's you know, multiple rounds, uh, maybe even still to come here. At what point, 
as we enter this earnings season right now, at what point do earnings really come front and center? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, earnings matter at the micro level. There's no doubt about that. Um, at the macro level, yeah, the, the, the tailwinds, particularly from policy, aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So uh, for, for pairs trades, earnings matter. But for, from a broader market perspective, uh, we think that, that really uh, the market's going to give a bit of a, a mulligan on, on earnings more broadly uh, until uh, for, for a little bit here. Uh, we think that Fed policy is going to remain accommodated for uh, the foreseeable future, fiscal policies uh, coming through even more. So as long as you have those tailwinds, it's really hard to see a large-scale uh, pullback in markets without some buyers coming back in. What do you imagine Janet Yellen's priorities will be as Treasury Secretary, and how will they impact the markets? Yeah, uh, we think that Yellen and just the broader Biden administration are looking at really what happened under the Obama years and that slow, grinding recovery and using that as a cautionary tale. They really want to get back to tight labor markets and as soon as possible. There are 10 million fewer people on the payroll today than there were this time last year. And we think that they want to accelerate that recovery and make sure that we can get to tighter labor markets much, much quicker than what occurred after the Great Recession. So really that, that labor market, and, that, and clearly that's yelling specialty, but, the, but, but tightening up that labor market is probably going to be first and foremost on her agenda. Hey, Mike, we've seen uh, this rotation trade play very well since let's call it September, are you a proponent of this rotation trade out of maybe some of the core growth names into some of more cyclical names that might benefit from this economic recovery? Yeah, so I'd say we're, we're, we're cautiously optimistic on that rotation. Uh, rather than value growth, we actually like a small rather than, than large. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a way to really play this, this, uh, this pickup in, in activity. Uh, you should see PM, PMIs are already uh, at high levels. You should see them actually continue to increase as the recovery takes hold. Just that, that, that recovery should help cyclicals, number one, but small caps in particular, which are really dependent upon this domestic market, dependent upon the consumer, and should really be a nice play into this, this strong bounce back in growth. All right, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. A lot going on today, and uh, we appreciate your time. That is Mike Dowdall, investment strategist and portfolio manager at BMO Global Asset Management. Just to bring you some more comments now from Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary. She's answering questions to the Senate Finance Committee. She says, if we don't contain the pandemic, help Americans suffering from it and invest in long-term growth, we'll be worse off with respect to growth and debt. So she's definitely getting questioned on the long-term effects of this stimulus, whatever it may be. Joe Biden, of course, looking for $1.9 trillion, but uh, will he get all of that? Hardly. It's hardly likely. Well, it has been almost two weeks since the uprising, since the riot, since the insurrection on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and we're starting to just learn more and more about what happened from a security perspective. Let's get the latest. We can do that with Clint Watts, Distinguished Research Fellow for the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University. Clint, thanks so much for joining us again. We continue to see more and more of these shocking images and video from what happened on Capitol Hill. From a security perspective, what broke down? What do we know? How did it break down? I think uh, really there's two parts. One, the District of Columbia is ultimately commanded by the president as much as the mayor. And so I think the mayor has limited resources, the Capitol Police, have to coordinate with the D.C. police. 
generally, when we're doing federal uh, sort of defensive mechanisms, uh, there's a lot of coordination there. I think it really comes down to the politicization of law enforcement and in the military and really hampering the response, people not being sure or wanting to be out front, in large part because the president was there for that rally up to a certain point. He was giving speeches. It was his supporters. I think they were afraid to get involved, certainly on, on the response. You know, once it was breached, it became very clear that National Guard needed to be there. We needed a lot more people on the ground. They were very slow to respond. And I think this shows the damage done by the two months prior where there was lots of debate and the military was signaling very strongly that they did not want to be involved in the election and its turnover. I would tell you from the supporters that were there that day, one of the conspiracies that many of them believed was that the U.S. military would show up, declare martial law under the governance of the president, President Trump, and then keep him in power. That was one of the conspiracies they believed. So I'm sure this all played into the thinking in terms of that response, and you saw just a domino effect of breakdowns. Uh, ultimately leading to why didn't the president tell his supporters, you know, get out of the Capitol uh, much, much quicker. Clint, there's obviously a lot getting done in Washington, D.C., but do other states have the resources to have men and women defending their state houses? And how much do you anticipate violence in other states? I think a week ago, the worry was around the Capitol and you saw this massive mobilization. You know, it's four to five times the number of troops we have in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, at this point. And that sent a downward signal. You could see it in extremist forums. They were essentially saying, stand down and don't go to the nation's capital. Then the fear was state capitals. Even with the uh, so-called mobilizations or protests that we expected to see on January 17th and 18th in different uh, cities and states, they were lightly attended, uh, you know, five to ten people. I think the message had gotten out. What you do see in the background of some of these forums right now is really a call to go outside of the capitals. They know that law enforcement, National Guard are there, um, and to make yourself known, but then wait to essentially have a provocation against you and use that as impetus. I think there will be light attendance in this. What I am worried about is the odd one or small group of cells of two or three that see this as their last chance to make a real show. Uh, on Wednesday. Those are the folks that are on dark, uh, you know, communication platforms can be easily observed. They may maybe, you know, better trained or better skilled, or they could just be literally mentally disturbed people that want to sort of finish this out. That's most of the worry I imagine for law enforcement now. I, I'm hoping that, that the best outcome comes, which is a peaceful day tomorrow. Clint, one of the real concerns coming out of the investigation on what happened on the Capitol is to what extent, if any, was there coordination, was there planning, whether it's inside Congress, you know, perhaps even members of Congress providing tours the day before, or maybe external funding? What do we know about some of the organization and planning and, and issues? Yeah, I think what's interesting is this was well organized all the way up to the day. I I have researchers. We we watch this. It became very clear about two weeks out this was going to be a sizable event. By Sunday before, we were all hands on deck watching this. It was not surprising, I think, to anybody who had been watching the scale of this. Part of that is because of the online communication and coordination. They were crowdfunding, uh, you know, to support their travel. They were coordinating their travel to D.C. There were discussions about how do you – can you or can you not get weapons, you know, into uh, the District of Columbia – 
So this is pretty significant. I think what will happen over time is with each of these arrests and more and more witnesses surfacing, the evidence will gather to where you can put together a loose chain of command in terms of who was inciting the actual breaking in of the Capitol. There were barely clearly people that were just there because they spoke the president. There were others that were there and excited and kind of got caught up in the moment. But beyond that, there were groups of, of militant extremists, essentially, that were going there for the express purpose of breaking into the Capitol, and they had the tools, they had the equipment, they had the resources, they had the guidance to get there. And I think that's where I will be interested in the next two to three weeks to see how these FBI investigations unfold. So the way the mall is set up right now and, uh, you know, that basically all around D.C. is that there are flags in the places of where people might be standing typically at a regular inauguration day. That, coupled with some wise words from Joe Biden, might be enough to sort of uh, talk to these people. Clint, do you think, I mean, are there words that can reach across the aisle to these people? For those that are the furthest out on the extreme that have been absorbing these conspiracy theories and lies for the last three to four years, I don't really think there's much coming back. And, and you can you can see that in some interviews with uh, President Trump's most ardent supporters that they saw this as either okay or justifiable based on what they've seen at other protests in the past. They kind of rationalize it. I think it's a dangerous phenomenon. Part of it, what complicates all of this is the pandemic. Uh, we have a nation divided about it. Uh, they're not just divided about that. They're divided about the economy. Patching all those things instantaneously just won't happen. Uh, the forces that will matter will ultimately come down to how does President Trump behave when he's out of office? I think we kind of know how President Biden will govern. He'll, he will look a lot like a traditional sort of president. Will that really calm down the sort of storm of disinformation and conspiracies, these mobilization to violences? I'm not convinced at the moment based on both the fact that the president kind of repeats the electoral fraud rhetoric despite all evidence. And you also had more than 100 GOP members still vote after that mobilization inside the Capitol, still vote based on a conspiracy. So I'm not hopeful yet until that changes that we'll see much of a change in terms of the course in which the country is going. All right, Clint, the story then will continue. We will welcome you back very soon. Clint Watts, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also former FBI agent specialising in terrorism, and uh, we are very grateful for his time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.